The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hi everyone, this is Jackie Baker coming to you from Murdoch University, which stands on the unceded lands of the Wajuk Noongar people of the Noongar Nation. Indonesia has been called one of the world's most decentralised democracies. And this is because Indonesians not only vote for their national, district and provincial parliaments, they vote directly on their presidents, their governors and their district heads. The power to determine local government and directly elect local leadership was one of the core wins of Reformasi, a pushback on Suharto's practice appointing Jakarta cronies to quell local determination across this giant, sprawling archipelago. But for a short period, something is changing to that system. This year, the Indonesian government replaced more than 110 local elected leaders for appointed caretaker leaders. By 2024, almost all district and provincial leaders will be appointments from Jakarta. The government says that this is a technocratic fix. The plan is to hold all district, provincial and national elections on the same day. And to get us there, we need caretaker administrations when the electoral terms of these local leaders run out. These appointments have occupied a kind of strange political space. Most Indonesians don't seem to know anything about them. And that's because on one side, they've been presented as highly technocratic, mired in the public administration of this huge and complex decentralised democracy. But as these appointments are being made, questions are now starting to be asked. Who are these interim regional leaders and who decided on their rule? How will they rule? If the caretaker administrations are just this technocratic stopgap, then why do they feel like Jakarta overreach? Is something fundamentally changing in the way Indonesia organises democratic political representation? To talk about these issues, I'm here in studio, sitting face to face this time with my colleague Ian Wilson, a senior lecturer in politics, terrorism and counterterrorism at Murdoch University. Hi, Ian. Thanks, Jackie. I'm happy to be here. Um, so, Ian, get us, give us some background. Like, why is Indonesia embarking on appointing caretaker regional administrations? Okay, this goes all the way back to 2016. Uh, and in 2016, there was a revised legislation around the Pilkada or the regional uh, elections. And one of the key uh, changes in that is that it set 2024 as the year in which all regional elections would be held. Now, what that did by default is it reset the electoral cycle because we've had uh, regional elections in different time periods. So some, we've had some in 2017, some parts of the country, others in 2019. And resetting it all to 2024 uh, meant two things happened. Some elected periods uh, ended significantly before that, creating a, a gap period up, up to two and a half years. So that's half of a full elected term. Uh, and in some other cases, it cuts short elected periods of five years as a set term for, say, a governor or a region by around one to two years. So it's created this situation where you have this kind of democratic deficit around periods of elected representation. 
Now, there were a couple of arguments presented for this. One was simply a logistic and cost one, that it uh, was argued uh, by proponents of the bill that it was cheaper and more logistically effective to hold all elections at once rather than having, say, by-elections in a, in a regency or at a provincial level when a term uh, came uh, to an end. And some have questioned that. The second has been a, a, a longer discourse that links election campaigning to potentials for social conflict. Uh, and so there was also an argument made that having them all of the, together would somehow, uh, and it's very thin on detail, this argument, would somehow minimise the potential for social conflict emerging from campaigning. So just to clarify, the caretaker administrations, are they just at the um, at the propensia, the provincial level, or are they also at the Kapupaten and the district level? Yeah, so they occur at the provincial level, at the region or Kapupaten uh, level, and also at the uh, city level. So it's massive. So how many yeah. caretaker administrations are we seeing? By 2024, it will be almost everywhere in the country. Uh, what's probably significant, though, is that those have fallen this year in 2022 because they're the ones that will have the longest interim period. And to date, we have seven provinces, uh, 76 couple part then, uh, and 18 cities who all have already uh, interim leaders. And so that's, and I worked it out before, uh, that worked out at those who were put in place in May, that's 33 months they will be in office uh, before there's an election. And of course, by the time, you know, a, a new person is chosen and they're installed, it will be considerably uh, longer than that. Uh, by next year, there will be a further 17 provinces, 114 couple part then, and 38 cities. And they'll be in, those interim leaves will be in place for about 21 to 24 months. That's an in incredible scale. I don't think mm -hmm. I really registered just to the extent that by which these new procedures are coming in place. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us a bit about how the Jokowi government has, has managed this process? How have they decided on these interim leaders? Yeah, well, this has been the source of some contestation. The, the 2016 legislation is pretty vague uh, about the processes uh, about how interim leaders were to be uh, appointed. The Constitutional Court subsequently provided what they called in-principled guidelines. So these aren't procedural guidelines, but they're in-principle. Uh, and they stated that it should be in accord with values of it should be democratic broadly, uh, in, not defined what they meant by that, uh, transparent uh, and participatory. Now, in practice, it's fallen on the Ministry of Home Affairs to determine the outcome. Uh, and there's been a lot of contention around this, including two constitutional court challenges to date, and there's a new case in the State Administrative Court uh, that's just recently been launched, uh, again, questioning the procedures, because it could be read in the constitutional court's decision that they had requested the government to further legislate the procedure around this, and it wasn't just in principle, but they should develop legislation to embody those in principle approaches. Uh, to this point in time, they haven't done so, and in fact, the Minister for Home Affairs has been quite publicly dismissive of this, saying, well, we, we can't be democratic in the sense that we vote on it because it's too time-consuming and, and uh, it's really, you know, we listen to different groups and then we, uh, the Indonesian term uses, we'll, we'll filter their aspirations and, and make a decision. 
In some cases, it's involved direct consultation with regional parliaments uh, and also the incumbent so that they've put forward names uh, of their preferred choices. Uh, though in a number of cases that have come up to date, none of those recommendations have been shortlisted at all. In fact, the Ministry of Home Affairs has often had its own candidates clearly in mind prior to this, and in some cases barely consulted with regional parliaments at all. So there's been a, a strong perception that's emerged that this is deeply unconsultative uh, and that, you know, really the most extreme language, I guess, came from the, the JRMK, the Jararakat Miskin Kota. It's an urban poor organisation based primarily in Jakarta, and they launched a challenge to the 2016 legislation uh, in the, well, they asked for the, the Constitutional Court to test its constitutionality with the argument that it didn't allow them as citizens to have an elected representative. And they said, in their view, uh, it was uh, effectively a coup d'etat, that central government was essentially uh, bypassing the democratic process uh, entirely. The Constitutional Court said there was no grounds for that, and so um, that sort of reached a bit of a dead end. But there's very much a strong, and I think there's going to be an even growing perception as these interim leaders change appointments, instigate policies, etc., that this really is, for many people, uh, a return to almost a new order situation of, of installed leaders by government making core policy decisions but without any political mandate. This just seems so um, like there's a sort of policy vacuum around this. So we know that the Home Affairs have already rejected the idea of putting forward legislation around these appointments. Mm. So are they operating by some kind of department devised procedures that anyone's been able to look at? And what sort of guidelines have they given interim uh, leaders for governing? Yeah, well, again, in this really being characterised by deep ambiguity uh, and part of the most recent court challenge, which is being put together by the LBH, uh, Legal Aid Foundation, has been that there is a distinct lack of procedure uh, despite the constitutional court earlier decision saying that the government needed to legislate, you know, in the absence of clear procedure, it's really come down to a very untransparent process. Uh, the ombudsman, and this was after a complaint was forwarded by Jad M. Carr after their failed constitutional court challenge, they made a complaint to the ombudsman who did a substantive review and their findings were pretty damning. They basically said, you know, the process is completely untransparent. It seems highly undemocratic and it seems to have minimal levels of participation from key stakeholder groups. So it really sort of underscored the perception of groups such as Car that really the Ministry of Home Affairs, uh, including the President, because the President has to sign off on all of these uh, choices, mm -hmm. that really they had you know, bypassed regional parliaments entirely in most cases and had handpicked their candidates. And some initial mapping certainly that, I, that I've done of some of the candidates throughout the country uh, in many cases, there are very strong relationships, if not with the Ministry of Home Affairs, uh, uh, with the Minister of Home Affairs himself. Uh, and in the case of Jakarta and Jakarta's interim governor, a very close and long personal relationship with the president who is said to have chosen him specifically for the role. How does the Ministry of Home Affairs and the Jokowi government defend themselves against these critics? Like what have they said about this process and how have they suggested that it is democratic um, participatory and transparent? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting question because uh, it really comes down primarily to the Minister of Home Affairs, it's Tito Kanivan, who's the former uh, National Police Chief. Uh, and Patito's had well-publicised views about his understanding of democracy and how he sees the future of elections in Indonesia. And, you know, uh, quite a few Indonesian commentators have put the pieces together that, you know, this is he's sort of capturing this process to, to put in place some of his ideas. And these ideas are around the idea uh, that's circulated, you know, ever since Reformasi really, regional elections are a flawed process, that they're rife with corruption and that there's, of course, there's evidence that's the case. But they use this commonly held perception to make the argument these are fundamentally ineffective mechanisms and what we should do is return to a process whereby regional leaders are appointed by regional parliaments. Uh, so uh, part of the rationale is segued with this, and, and part of it, uh, and, and part Tito is quite adept at doing this, of sort of blurring what democracy actually means. And of course, in Indonesia, there, there are various interpretations uh, of this. Uh, you know, this strong representation in parliament from parties like Gurindra, who have as part of their, you know, their party philosophy as such, a return to the original constitution. Of course, the original Indonesian constitution makes no mention of democracy. It's focused in many respects on, on executive power and principles of Mushawara. And so Mushawara is, is broadly speaking a consultative process involving various figures, but it's not a democratic process. So Tito in particular has talked about, you know, firstly in a technocratic language, these are the best candidates, you know, they'll, they'll do a great job and so you shouldn't even question that because we've chosen the best people. Uh, and the second has been to really uh, muddy the waters to what a democratic process would look like. And so, he again, he's used this term manjaring aspirasi. We've spoken to lots of different people. You know, it's a process that's not um, maybe unfamiliar working in the university sector where, you know, where there's a proposal put forward and then, you know, where we, some groups are allowed to speak and then there's a tinkering, but fundamentally the decision had already been made previously. So he said he's spoken to different stakeholders. Uh, but again, there's no legislation around this. So right. it's really pretty ad hoc. Uh, and if you look at different provinces in particular, the, the seven governors who've been installed, the processes have been quite distinct, in some cases with strong representation from regional parliaments. And of course, they also represent party interests, right, which can align and, and favour certain candidates, uh, and in some cases, be in quite hostile relationships to the incumbent. So, you know, there's questions around the extent to which even that is, is a good way of doing it. And in other cases, it's really been handpicked candidates of the ministry or the president. So I guess the model that the Minister for Home Affairs is putting forward is a model of, of decentralised democracy where we have regional parliaments but we we have appointed people party or mayors and governors. Is that the kind of, is that what he's defending, do you think? Um, I could digress and talk about his ideas of... Oh, uh, digress. That's okay. what this podcast is for, uh, digress I'll, away. I'll, I'll digress away then. So... <laughs> Tito's interesting because, you know, he's, he has a PhD, he's yeah. intellectual, uh, has, you know, he, he reads, he thinks, yeah. uh, and he's developed his sort of own ideas which as Minister of Home Affairs have segued with his role. So rather than just being personally held, you know, ideas or thought bubbles, he's, he's kind of pushed some of these ideas within his portfolio. And one of them which, you know, most people balk um, when they hear it is the idea of asymmetrical democracy. And it's an interesting set of ideas because it, it harks back to new orderish ideas, but also draws on you know some contemporary 
political science literature, he essentially argues that parts of the Indonesian population don't have the democratic maturity or the level of appropriate sociocultural and other development to be able to intelligently and substantively engage in democracy. So what he proposes in this idea of asymmetrical democracy is that the democracy maturity index, uh, which is a particular index that's developed around democratic maturity, it's kind of a weird... Hang on, it exists? It does exist. I, I won't talk about it in detail, but look it up. That be, be paired with the Human Development Index, which is, of course, you know, a way of assessing developmental outcomes in terms of education, access to health, you know, and other things, that these two be paired to determine which parts of the country are sufficiently advanced, mature or developed to be able to directly elect their regional leaders. So in this model, essentially... Places that have higher levels of education, higher overall living standards. And, of course, Indonesia is a vast country. There are places with immense concentrations of wealth. Jakarta is, of course, one example. And then you have really underdeveloped parts of the country, such as parts of West Papua, etc. So in this particular model, using those indices, Jakarta would have regional elections because by these measures, they're sufficiently mature and developed enough to partake in democracy, according to Partito, whereas other parts of the country would not. Uh, and he's proposal would be that they would have leaders that were chosen uh, by deliberations of regional parliaments and presumably with the input of central government. So this is his kind of private set of ideas, but he's been quite active in promoting them via the ministry. Uh, and of course, as you probably imagine, there have been others who sort of said, that sounds like a great idea. Um, not as intellectually sophisticated in terms of how they articulate it, but seeing it in a space where they can make an argument for reformist ideas as the foundation for it. So regional democracy is marred with corruption because of the way that political campaigning is done. The established patterns uh, whereby candidates, you know, develop clientelist relations with voter blocks, etc., the amount of money that's borrowed to campaign, all of these things which are, you know, quite factually correct but are used as an argument not for reforming the electoral system, not for reforming campaign financing, but rather as an argument for removing elections entirely. So there's been a few, the Speaker of the House, Bambang Susetio from Golkar and others have also sort of championed not quite asymmetrical democracy, but taken Tito's lead to say, well, yeah, um, democracy's got problems uh, and the answer is inevitably, well, let's, let's remove democracy. Uh, and, and it's also often linked to nat nativist arguments that, What's not anti-democratic, we're developing in Indonesia with Indonesia, uh, a democracy with Indonesian characteristics. And this returns to ideas around democracy as involving conflict between different parties and that Mushawara is a more fundamentally Indonesian concept. And, and there have been many who've argued this over the years from Prabowo Subianto, Habib Rizik and other figures who said, well, Indonesia's not democratic, that's a, a kind of an externality that's been imposed on Indonesia, we're a Mushyawara-based country. So there are different undercurrents to this idea. Uh, it's just with this, I think, with this interim leaders kind of phenomena, you see a lot of these things coming together uh, in terms of the rationale for it. Because on one level, it makes no sense, right? You can, if a term ends, you just hold a local election. It's not hard. It's done all over the world, all, all the time. Here, there's been a pretty thin argument made as to why they have to have this massive gap 
I mean, caretaker governments are common, but not for two and a half years, not with full executive powers, including being able to hire and fire senior civil servants and to fundamentally change the direction of policy. That's quite unprecedented in terms of, of established electoral democracies. And this, but that's what's going on. Like in the pattern of appointments, have mm. you noticed any prominent kind of dynamics at work? Are they from similar parties to the parties mm. aligned to the regional governments? What, how, how have you started to map these, um, the, the kind of characteristics of these appointed uh, governors and sure. mayors? Sure. Well, I mean, it's relatively early stages to begin with, so I can't give you a <laughs> All right, what's your end? Right? What's your end, Ian? <laughs> but I've I, I focused on two places or two areas in particular that, that, that interest me for different reasons. The first is Aceh. And, of course, you know, Aceh is quite distinct in the Indonesian electoral context because there was a, a peace deal that was reached in 2005 with, between the Free Aceh movement and the Indonesian government, which had special provisions for Aceh, which included holding local elections, uh, which could be contested by local parties. They didn't have to be national uh, parties. It has a, a degree of uh, autonomy, regional autonomy, other parts of the country, that was part of the peace deal to hold the peace. So it's particularly interesting to see what kind of interim leaders have been put in place there. And the initial pattern is, is quite unsettling. The uh, governor of Aceh, who's replaced uh, the elected governor, uh, has a military background from the TNE. Uh, and so there was initially some debate over whether someone who had an active status could in fact take on that role and what active status entailed. Uh, again, a murky kind of discussion that went everywhere and nowhere. And in the end, this person, I, I'm sorry, I don't have my notes to remember their name, but um, was put in place. Uh, and in three regencies, Kabupaten, there have been two uh, Bupati installed who have backgrounds in BIN, so the National Intelligence Agency, uh, and another in the police. Uh, and so many have commentated, you know, the, the sort of analysis of two things. Firstly, it reflects another discourse of Tito that, you know, that areas that are seen as rawan for conflict should be managed and securitized in particular kinds of ways. So many see in these appointments, and I should say in West, West Papua also, a police chief has been put in place as, as governor, um, that these areas, it's no surprise that there are people with intelligence, military and police backgrounds put in place. And they'll be important to watch because, of course, you know, part of the peace deal in Arche was to allow a degree of regional autonomy. And the idea that you're securitising with these kinds of appointments you know, I've heard that particular disquiet, as you could imagine, in certain sectors of Achenese societies, as, as to this and what it might mean in terms of Jakarta, the national government's view of that arrangement going into the future. In other instances uh, that I've looked at, uh, there have been very strong relationships to the Ministry of Home Affairs itself. In a number of cases, people have worked in the Ministry of Home Affairs, but without strong regional connections uh, have been put in place. Uh, and Jakarta, which is the case I know in the most detail, uh, Heru Hartono uh, is the interim governor who's replaced uh, Anis Baswedan, who was elected, you know, quite controversially in 2017, the case around Ahok and the blasphemy case. His term came to end in the 16th of October of this year. Now, Heru is interesting. He uh, has been a career uh, Jakarta city government administrator, uh, he was appointed, because mayors are appointed in Jakarta, he was appointed mayor of North Jakarta by Jokowi when Jokowi was governor 
of Jakarta and worked very closely with Jokowi and Ahok, who was then deputy governor, in some of their kind of signature policies, uh, in particular uh, Waduk Pluit, uh, which is in North Jakarta. Heru was instrumental in the clearing of that area of informal settlements and its transformation into a park, which really became a key policy that Jokowi used to sell himself. Uh, Heru initially was Ahok's preferred vice governor candidate when Ahok declared that you know, he would run in 2017 because um, of the party backing and party machinations he was later replaced. But again, a very close connection. And then after that, when he wasn't able to run as vice governor, he was appointed by Joko, who was by now president, as the chief of the presidential secretariat. Uh, and so from that position, he was said to have been handpicked by Jokowi to take over as the interim governor. So a real Jokowi insider has basically taken over the the helm at Jakarta. Yes, uh, and in particularly considering that, you know, the 2017 governorial election was between Ahok and between Anis Baswedan, the current interim governor was in the Ahok camp. In fact, if it wasn't for the intervention of the PDIP, he would have run as Ahok's vice uh, running mate. So it's been interesting and, you know, I think there's a lot more to come because he's going to be in that position presumably until 2024. So the interim leader regulation stipulates on paper that they should only be in office for 12 months. So when 12 months comes to an end, and so in the case of those who were installed from the very earliest stages, which is in May uh, of this year, we'll see in May next year how the national government approaches that, whether they'll make an argument to roll over and say, oh, they've done a fantastic job, let's keep them in place. It's about stability and all the rest of it. And I have a strong suspicion that's what we'll see unless they make a complete meal of it. Or whether they'll try and put someone else who may be more calibrated to the final period leading up to the elections. Do you see this as a power grab? I mean, do you see these interim appointments as a way to influence the path to 2024? Sure. Well, look, I mean, there's probably two examples I could give. And, and again, in, this is happening in a lot of places throughout the country and, and I haven't yet kind of got a, a close picture of a lot of parts of the country and the specific dynamics that are going on. But certainly in the case of Jakarta, and Jakarta is always significant in Indonesian politics just because Jakarta is a big place, it's the seat of national government and whatever happens in Jakarta has reverberations throughout the country. So it's interesting to watch how Heru has governed in his first few months in office. He's done a couple of things uh, which were interpreted by different parties probably in the way they are intended to. Prior to being sworn, he says, I'll, I'll basically continue the programs of Anis Baswedan because that's what, you know, that's what was being ticked off, that was what approved by parliament, that's what was, you know, he was elected to do by a majority of the voting public. Within 24 hours, one of the first things that he did was he, he reinstated a complaints desk at the front of City Hall. And that's a fairly innocuous thing, but the symbolism was significant because the complaints desk was kind of one of the, a sort of a, a handful of kind of populist policy measures that Jokowi and Aho instigated, really signalling to the public, look, we're hands-on, we as governor and vice governor, will directly deal with the public and listen to their complaints. And, and it, it signalled an idea of government that was more open and responsive, but also uh, situated the governor and the vice governor as essentially doing all this stuff themselves, which, of course, is not 
true because that's not how administrations fundamentally work at that level, but it certainly gave that impression. It was deeply ineffective because you have like swarms of people, particularly during COVID, you know, hundreds of people lining up to voice complaints at a desk, a physical desk. Uh, one of the things that Anis Baswedan's administration did was to remove it and they uh, upgraded the online application procedure. So there's an app, uh, there's also online portals where you can forward complaints. And they argue it was more efficient in COVID times. You know, it was in public health interest to not have this space of people milling about for long periods of time. Well, Hero introduced the, the complaints almost immediately and it was seen by many of the public but also party backers of AHOK and the president, PSI in particular, um, Partei Solidaritas Indonesia, who are a, a small newish party but essentially become you know, uh, professional cheerleaders for Jokowi. Um, they were very vocal saying, oh, see, we've got to return after five years of dark times and, you know, lazy government. This is democracy again. And so it, it, it had served its purpose to sort of um, signal to what many thought was the wrong outcome of 2017. Many of those who supported Ahok felt that it was fundamentally was stolen from him because of the blasphemy charges, because of the mobilisation of the 212 movement, of which, you know, Anis Baswedan did, you know, quite cynically, I think, take advantage of politically. And so they, they sort of said, well, here we, we've got to return. And so almost immediately you have this interim leader but who's invoking the previous administration who'd lost the election. Uh, and I think that's quite significant. The other thing, uh, and it's a bit more substantive in the case of Jakarta, is his discourse around dealing with flooding. Of course, flooding is a perennial issue in Jakarta. It shapes political discourse in really fundamental uh, ways. Uh, and he, quite soon after taking office, said he would seek to resume normalisasi. So normalisasi is a term that's used in Jakarta for policies for dealing with flooding that focus fundamentally on deepening and widening uh, Jakarta's waterways. And also, despite it's called normalisation, it makes you, well, in my mind, it always makes me think of a return to like riverbanks and mangroves. It means the exact opposite in practice. It means replacing riverbanks where they still exist in Jakarta with um, uh, concrete sort of sheet piling. Uh, critics have called it turning all of Jakarta's riverways into massive drains, essentially. Now, this had been on hold during the Baswedan administration for fundamentally democratic reasons. He'd formed political contracts with different constituent groups in Jakarta, particularly urban poor groups, including the JMK, and they had basically uh, brokered a deal. We'll support your election if you commit to ending mass evictions, including in the name of normalisation. The AHOK administration had, had got a lot of political support, particularly from the middle class, from a very aggressive program of normalisations which saw mass evictions, forced evictions, so people being forced out of their homes uh, in the name of widening the waterways and a discourse that linked their presence to flooding, even though that's really not technically the cause. So Herald signalled that he would return to normalisation, which had stalled under uh, Anis Baswedan or slowed down because he'd committed politically as part of his election promises to a different approach where he would negotiate, he would trick try and find brokered solutions to impacted communities, and that slows things down. So this immediately, again, supporters of Ahok said, hooray, we're seeing a return to stuff being done. There was memes produced en masse uh, and circulated on Twitter, many of which were, were misleading because they showed routine footage of 
dredging of waterways. It happens in every administration. It doesn't matter who's governor, but said, look, it's happening again now that Hera was in power. Uh, meanwhile, groups such as JMK and other urban poor groups, particularly those riverside communities, are, are quite anxious about what this may mean going into the future. Uh, so again, you know, a distinct policy shift uh, away from a policy that whatever you think of the previous governor was brokered as a political promise uh, with constituent groups. So again, it brings into question the extent to which interim leaders may, may forge distinct policy paths but without a political mandate. And in the case of Jakarta, particularly now that Anis Baswedan is looking like one of the key presidential contenders, the view that the interim leader may be weaponising their position to undermine signature approaches of Anis that undoubtedly will be part of his political campaign. And that's the tradition started by Jokowi, where he used some nominal uh, policy successes in Jakarta as his leaping board to the presidency. Now we talk about Jakarta, let's move to, I guess, another realm of political contestation, which is the new capital, mm. right? Now, purpose-built capitals like Brasilia or like Canberra, you know, they generate a particular kind of politics. Mm. And I'm wondering, what does Nusantara say to you in terms of the kinds of national politics the president envisions? Sure. Well, I mean, firstly, in the Indonesian context, the idea of moving the capital city is not a new idea. And in fact, Sukarno openly advocated for the idea uh, in the 1950s, and he was very inspired by Brasilia. In fact, the Indonesian government bought significant real estate in Brasilia itself uh, at the time. It, it appeals to nationalist visions of, you know, a, a grand reimagining of the nation, and most purpose-built capitals uh, have that kind of grand symbolism overlaying them, where the practicalities vary significantly depending on the context. Napidor in Myanmar, for example, is the product of a paranoid military regime that built a capital divorced from civil society who they, you know, they were worried about. You know, Canberra is a, a brokered deal between the contesting power centres of Melbourne and Sydney. I think in the case of Nusantara, why is it happening now? I think it's really difficult to disentangle it from these broader trends towards, you know, what, what other scholars have referred to as, you know, democratic regression, forms of illiberalism and the, the, the shrinking of democratic uh, space uh, in Indonesia. Looking at, at Nusantara and the graphic renderings of it, because at this stage it's that and a muddy mess, is it really kind of embodies everything that Jakarta isn't. It's pitched as being green. It's pitched as being uh, a smart city with integration of technologies into everyday life. It's pitched as being a pinnacle of technocratic governance. That also entails uh, not having any kind of elected representation. So the political model for Nusantara would have no governor. There's a kind of equivalent of a manager uh, as such. Um, a CEO. Yeah, something like that. Uh, Bambang Susantoro, who who's serves in the Yudhiyono administration, has been appointed by Jokowi. He's directly appointed by the president on a five-year term. Uh, and the political model will have that position uh, and no regional parliament. So there'll be a national parliament which will sit and reside and, and live in this utopianist place as they envision it, uh, but there'll be no direct representation itself. So I, I think it's quite difficult to disentangle some of these broader trends in why is this happening now and the kind of political model uh, that you're seeing, uh, particularly considering that you think about the history of modern Indonesia, 
Jakarta, and people can complain it's Jakarta-centric, but that's not just about power. It's about civil society groups. It's about the mobilisation of people in the streets. It's about reformasi, the mobilisation of ordinary working people and students that have fundamentally shaped Indonesia's future. One of the things that strikes me about the imaginings of Nusantara, and of course it's a political elite project, it's imagined by politicians, uh, and so I think it's by default reflects their preferred ordering of things, is it's really a place where civil society doesn't have any place. It will have civil servants, it will have those who serve civil servants through services and other things, but the idea of a thriving metropolis in which there's a push the tussle of ideas, the the conflicts of interest that shape a polity and that shape democracy. I think, you know, for all its problems, you know, Jakarta has been fundamental in shaping new kinds of democratic practice that are distinctly Indonesian. Uh, but I think disentangling executive power from a place like Jakarta is not going to happen without distinct shifts in political culture. And all of those point towards being less democratic, less accountable and less transparent. So I guess put together, right, you've got the the caretaker governments, the, the reorganising of, of local politics, basically, mm. and a kind of attempt to reorganise national politics as well. What What is the overriding theme that you see here? Substantive democracy, I think, is really facing some challenges in Indonesia. The current administration has not been friendly to democracy, and we're about to see possibly in the next few days the passing of the new criminal code, which will seek to further criminalise dissent uh, and political speech in Indonesia. And I think all of these things in combination, you know, it's quite a grim picture. And particularly, you know, the interim reader, leader phenomena, we'll have to see how it transpires, of course, but the initial indications and the phenomena itself all speak to um, you know, structural pressures that reduce the public's direct participation. Do you think it's narrowed democratic competition or is it a seek to eliminate democratic competition itself? I think it's a combination of both because there's already considerable structural, significant structural constraints on democratic contestation, right, the difficulties of establishing new political parties, the caps on electoral representation, etc. So there's, there's that, but this is taking it even further and bringing into question what many would see as a key outcome of Reformasi, which is decentralisation, regional autonomy and regional elections. It was the answer to the centralisation of power of the new order, which was its ultimate failing and, and a generated significant grievance throughout the country. And speaks to the fact that those ideas of autocratic governance have never gone away. They've been embraced by those who are in power to this day. And so I think that's you know, that's a big challenge for Indonesia going ahead. Thanks so much, Ian, for, for sharing your time with us today. It's my pleasure, Jackie. Thank you. So that was Ian Wilson, Senior Lecturer in Politics, Terrorism and Counterterrorism at Murdoch University. He's a relentless tweeter. Go out and look for him on Twitter and co-director of our brand spanking new Indo-Pacific Research Centre here at Murdoch. Talking Indonesia will return in a fortnight. But you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. This is my last podcast for 2022, so until 2023, bye for now.